Thank you, Jessica. Well, good morning. Did everybody get enough sleep last night? Are you feeling it? It's got some bloodshot eyes out there. Kids, are you paying attention this morning? Because this passage, actually, it's for adults, but there's children involved in this morning's message and story. And we're going to learn a little bit about what Jesus teaches about his view or their desires in Matthew 19. And we're going to look at the final verses in this chapter. And in this chapter, Matthew uh, treats us to two different occurrences where there are um, those that are seeking the things of God. And so in one occurrence, children are seeking the things of God, or at least the parents on their behalf. And then in another occurrence, a wealthy man or a rich man seems to be seeking the things of God. The children receive the blessing that they're looking for, but the rich man does not receive what he's looking for, and that is eternal life. So there's a sense in which in this passage... um, One is accepted and the other is not. We're going to find out why in these verses. Matthew 19, 13 through 22. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So first, accepting the rejected. And I have based my two points of the sermon on the disciples' reaction and the disciples' interaction with the events, the occurrences that take place. So it's kind of looking in at their response. And we can learn Uh, Not just from Jesus's words, but actually a lot of times it's the disciples response, whether it's right or wrong, that really helps solidify what Jesus is trying to teach. So Jesus accepts the children to come to him, but the the rich man is uh, rejected. And ironically, the disciples have the opposite response. They're the ones that are rejecting the children, pushing the children away. And yet when Jesus rejects the rich man, they're astounded 
that such a person would be rejected because they had kind of accepted him, thinking if anybody could get into the kingdom, it would be this young, rich ruler. And so many times, even believers, because of the flesh, because of worldly thinking, we think just the opposite of the teachings of the kingdom. So we want to use Christ's word to transform our minds into thinking kingdom thoughts. So backing up to our first point, accepting the rejected. Now you, you can imagine the scene here where Jesus, of course, he travels by foot and they're walking these guys, disciples, and there's almost always a crowd around him. And the parents uh, are bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus. Now, in the disciples' mind, this is not good at all. Because really what's happening is these children and their parents are pestering Jesus. And the mindset is this. Jesus is a king. He is here to establish a kingdom. He's offering teachings. He has followers. What he's doing is very needed and it's very radical and it's very important. And for you to bring your children and have children running around legs and grabbing on hands and hugging this, all this kind of stuff... And just trying to press in. It's, it's an interruption. What is happening here is very important. This is kingdom building business. It takes a great deal of time. Sacrifice. Uh, attention. Focus. You really have to prioritize things in order for the king to build his kingdom. And so for Pete's sake. Could you please just. Grab your kids and, and get them out of here to make way for this important work that Christ is doing. Now, in their defense, um, now you know by now and, and even just in the Gospel of Matthew that the cultural mindset from every angle was not at all child-centered. I mean, the Romans kind of kept the children they wanted and just totally discarded, left to die the children they didn't want. The children were somewhat of a commodity to use. The Jews had a different mindset. They loved children. They valued children as a blessing from God. However, the emphasis was on children honoring parents. So children were to stay quiet. They were to stay out of the way because the important work really could be found with the adults. And you had to just kind of wait until you became an adult uh, to have any kind of worth or value. So really children in that culture... They didn't have a status. They didn't have any rights. They were very, very lowly. They were, in, in essence, to get out of the way of important work. And so even what we learned in Matthew, the previous chapter 18, Jesus actually takes this place or this non-status. They don't have any rights. He takes the place of a child and he says, you can't even get into the kingdom of God Without first becoming a child, meaning that you have to understand your place in life. You have to understand your place before your heavenly father, even to just get in. And once you're in, you do well to keep this attitude of lowliness. You keep this attitude. Children are dependent. They can't go out and get jobs on their own. They can't just go out and buy a house on their own. They're dependent on their parents to provide for them. And disciples need to keep that attitude of total dependence. I can't do any of this on my own. Abba Father, I need you to provide for me. 
So the humility, the lowliness, there's just a mindset that is cultivated and it's a kingdom work. It's a very needed thing in order for disciples to grow. And rather than, as adults often do, categorizing people, using people to get up and pushing other people down. And you have your social statuses, your financial statuses and so forth. So while the the disciples are rebuking the children, in essence, Jesus is rebuking the disciples. Anyway, you got this one wrong. And then we hear these this faint, these very, very famous words. Let the children come. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Children. Now, before we speak directly about children seeking God or seeking a blessing, technically speaking, it's the parents that are seeking the blessing for the children, right? I mean, you know how mom and dad are. You know how parents are. Anything that they can do to spark an interest in their children of kingdom things, anything they can do, any event or any person that they can put them close to that would would, um, influence them in a spiritual way, any kind of advantage or favor that they can get, parents want to put their children in that position. And it's a good thing to want to do that. And so the parents see Jesus as a very important man, a very godly person. He's, his teaching or teachings are profound. He has power to heal, power to save. So, of course, they would want to put their children into the hands of Jesus to, to invoke any kind of spiritual blessing, any kind of spiritual favor, anything that he would be willing to grant them at that time. Uh, James 5 16, we're reminded that he says the prayers of a righteous man, they availeth much. And so they see in this man a righteous person. And perhaps his prayer, his blessing, just laying on the hands might impart something to my child to bring them closer to God. But it's interesting that Jesus's response isn't to the parents. He's not saying get don't don't hinder the parents, but he's he turns the emphasis on What the children are seeking. He sees that these children really do see something in him. There's an excitement here. There's an interest there. We don't know how much of it is just childishness and how much of it is genuine. But there's something genuinely taking place here. That can't be hindered, shouldn't be hindered. There's there's kingdom work taking place. Based on his response. So there's a desire there for the things of God. So if we just if we just entertain this idea of the last couple chapters on Jesus's teaching about having this childlike mindset, is it true? Is there is is there an attitude that even adults can have that children more naturally have that's conducive to Kingdom activity or spiritual activity that's conducive to powerful things taking place in individuals lives. So is he right? And you put all these attributes or characteristics together and you actually can uh, position yourself to make something positive or spiritual happen. We could put it this way. 
in the midst of children. Is there truly spiritual activity? Is there truly a wooing of the kingdom? Is the Holy Spirit at work? And how much is taking place in the unseen realm even right now? As the word of God goes forth. Is there such thing to push it even farther? Is there such thing as perhaps among mankind a certain age where humanity is more susceptible to spiritual things than other ages? Well, according to some research, there is. The Nazarene Church Growth Research Project um, researched ages where people committed their lives to Christ. Here's what they found. So from zero to four years old, one percent the population. And I'm guessing this this is Western civilization. One percent commits to Christ between the ages of zero and four. Between the ages of four and 14 years old. 85% people make their commitment to Christ. Between the ages of 15 and 30, 10% and then 30 plus 4%. So there's something happening here. I have a few more just to kind of even out. Those are actually very positive statistics. Another survey, the International Bible Society indicated that 83% of all Christians make their commitment to Jesus between the ages of 4 and 14. Now, the Barna Research Group isn't quite as optimistic, but still lines up. They say they demonstrate that American children ages 5 to 13 have a 32 percent probability of accepting Christ. But youth or teens, they say 14 to 18, have only a 4 percent probability, 19 and above a 6 percent probability. So they're lower. But no matter what statistic you look at, there is an age group. Um, that is very susceptible to the things of God. And that they've even coined it the 4 to 14 window because there's this window of opportunity to reach humanity. So there's there's this mindset among our children that is needed for kingdom things to happen. They have it more naturally. Now, the older we get, the crustier we get and the more set in our ways we get and like I know better than this and and we begin to burn and singe away our sensitivities to spiritual things. But among this age group, there's tremendous spiritual sensitivity, which tells me there's tremendous spiritual activity that's happening around our youth in this age. God is after them, seeking them, working in their hearts. Very, very Busy, And it doesn't stop there. The research went on to found to find that uh, many of today's missionaries uh, actually received the prompting of the call to missions between the 414 window. I mean, that's how, of course, they didn't act on it until later, but it was this twinge calling a work of the Holy Spirit between four and 14 of what God might want to do. With their lives. So I read this and I think about Jesus's words and it just opens my eyes to the tremendous work that takes place 
all the different things that children are exposed to in our culture. It's not just things of the world, but it's things of the spirit. The, the, the kingdom belongs to the lowly. The, kim, kim, the kingdom belongs to the humble. Actually, to those who realize that they are dependent on authorities that are over them. And there's something about that, that, that lifestyle and that way of thinking that is conducive to spiritual decisions. And maybe it's because their minds are so much freer than ours as adults. I mean, we have so many responsibilities. They're not trying to figure out... Can I pay the electric bill this month? When am I going to get around to fixing the car? It's been sitting in the driveway for three months. And all of them, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to get the raise I want? And the tensions at work, their minds are free from that kind of stuff. They're still in the growing and figuring out process. But because other people are taking care of the heavy lifting during this time, their minds are free. And so there's this attitude. And of course, if we would learn to trust God like that and realize, yeah, he covers this. We can trust him here. We can trust him. Our minds would be free to grow in Christ as well. But just by way of application, you know, we we want to think along these same lines as far as the importance of educating and being spiritually involved with our children in our families and in our church Community. And the main reason, one of the reasons that we, um, you know, we do things that are conducive to invest in our children. We have a baby dedication coming up next Sunday. And we do this kind of like the same reason that the parents were bringing their kids to Christ. We recognize that we want any favor we can get from the heavens to fall upon our babies and that they would come to Christ at an early age and that he's using our the parents, the family, the community, the Christian community, everything to woo and to draw those little precious gifts into his presence. It's just a plea. It's an official petition. Oh, God, have mercy on this child. We also invest, of course, in our children with um, the Sunday school. Those that labor, the adults that labor down there Sunday after Sunday, and they're preparing during the week and squeaking out time so that they can prepare the lessons to plant seeds into the minds and the hearts of our children with the hopes that the kingdom would take root. It's, it's, it takes time, it takes sacrifice, it takes money. But we must not hinder the children to come to Christ, they're sensitive at this age. And my and a shout out to all of you that invest in our youth, that teach and labor in the classrooms and and that do the work of with our with our youth, people of all ages. J.C. Ryle says, let us draw encouragement from these verses to attempt great things in the religious instruction of children. Let us begin from the very earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or to be saved. And let us strive to bring them Christ. Let us make them acquainted with the Bible as soon as they can understand anything. Let us pray with them and pray for them and teach them to pray for themselves. The seed sown in infancy is often found after many days. I remember it's been probably a half a year or, or, or more now as having a, a devotion and sermon prep time. 
And, uh, and I was very, let's be frankly, be frank and honest, very distraught, very burdened about our young adults leaving the church. You know, they're raised in the church, they're invested in the church, and then they uh, get their independence and they become, I don't know, 19, 20, whatever, 20-somethings. And then slowly, it's like this, gla- this gradual leaving. And I just don't understand, and it frustrates me that I can't understand that young people can't understand that church is a priority. I mean, I see it so plain in Scripture, so I'm frustrated at myself. How do I communicate this? What am I doing wrong? So I'm all worried and twisted up inside about that. And then I and I think, what do I do about it, God? And then the thought comes, well, they're young adults. And we have made some efforts as a church. We made some efforts to try to draw people in, try to keep them But they're young adults and they have to live with their own decisions and their own choices and the consequences that come with it. I mean, that's what adulthood does for you. Then suddenly my eyes were open to another group, a category, and that is the youth that do come to church. And the the ones that come with whether it's whether you're here because your parents happen to come to this church or not. But there are kids that come every Sunday faithfully. And they are our responsibility in part. Sure, they're the parents' responsibility, but they are this church community's responsibility. And and I began to get bothered by the fact that we hadn't had anybody working with a youth for a while. Now, it is this church is for two reasons. One is, of course, we're limited in our budget. We can't just say, man, I'd love a great this or a great that. Let's hire them. And well, it doesn't happen with with our budget. But also, we firmly believe that within the body, Christ equips and raises up spiritually gifts people to do the work of the ministry so that God's kingdom is being built among us and that people are being ministered to. However, there had been quite some time when our youth, that our youth had been neglected for whatever reason, people weren't raised up. And so I just thought, okay, it's one thing for young adults to be able to make their own decisions. But when the youth come here, we need to do something with these kids while we have them. And I brought that burden to the elders and we prayed about it and they were on board. And as a result of that, we now have, praise God, uh, a youth group. And we are still finding our way. And Sam and Michelle said, well, we, you know, we're. Can't take it all, but we'll we'll get the ball rolling and see what God does with it. And I appreciate your prayers to see what God is going to do with it. But I'm so blessed to know that our youth now are being taught the truths of God, not just in Sunday school, but they also have an opportunity to come together age appropriately. And I understand that this month or perhaps next month they're going to be uh, doing hands on ministry events. It just blesses my heart that that's taking place now again in our church, that investment where God, that age where God often um, works. So a shout out to all of those that play a part. If uh, if you want to play a part, pray about it. I'm sure we can think of some way for you to be involved. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. So in essence, in this passage, Jesus accepted those that the disciples were trying to keep away. And he said, no, 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 no. Open the, get, you get out of the way and let them come. But then we have the second part, rejecting the accepted. Now, in Matthew's gospel, by the way, these stories are in 
the synoptic gospels, the three gospels, and they are in this very order. So it's important the way that this transpires. Matthew calls him rich. Luke calls him a rich young ruler. Jesus calls him wealthy. The point is that he is well to do, very well off. He's got a lot of things. He's got a lot of money. He's young, too. You might could say he's he's pretty set. You know, he likes his stuff a lot. He's got Amazon delivering stuff every day. A new package, a new package. It's that kind of thing. And he's not irresponsible because uh, as a young ruler, possibly he was a synagogue leader. So the idea is that he's got his act together. And we don't get the impression that like the Pharisees are always coming to challenge Jesus and one up him. The impression is, no, this guy's soul is burdened. He's really, really struggling with life. And he realizes, you know, in this life, I am set. I've got all all my bases covered. I feel very safe, very secure. But when it comes to the afterlife, the world to come, I'm not so sure. I don't have assurance. I don't really know where I'm going or what's going to become of me or what or am I going to have eternal life? And so, though, I think I have everything in this life. There is definitely something missing in the next. And so he knows in his thinking it has something to do with good works in order to get the assurance I need. It has something to do with good works. And so he asked Jesus, what good do I have to do? What work do I need to add to my already busy good work schedule so that I can have in my heart this assurance of eternal life? And then Jesus answers with words that are puzzling to our ears. Why ask me about good? I mean, there's only one who is good. And is that a reference to, to his deity? Maybe, maybe not. But what is clear is in essence what he's saying is you're asking me what you have to do for eternal life I mean as a Jewish person you're raised with knowing what you're supposed to do or what you have to do in other words why are you asking me what you have been taught in your spiritual formation your whole life because you you serve a good god who gave you good commandments and that's what you are taught that you have to keep the commandments in order to have Eternal life. So what what are you not getting about this? There's very common knowledge around that Jewish culture, part of your upbringing. What's not adequate for you? And some say, well, he's probably looking for a loophole. It's kind of like saying, do I have to do all ten of the commandments? And others say, no, he's confused because the rabbis argued about it so much, exactly what it takes and how obedient you have to actually be in order to get into the kingdom of God. That it, it actually caused confusion and consternation. And so people weren't secure. Jesus answers him by focusing on the fifth to nine commandments, the, the man to man commandments, the commandments that for the most part are pretty observable. And he says, these are the ones that you you have to do. And uh, he says, well, in essence, I've kept those. I got got that. I mean, I'm doing these things. But he's still bothered. He's still bothered that what he is doing is not 
enough, is conscious, is at work deep inside him. It's interesting to me that Jesus, when he says, well, I've done all those things. I mean, I'm, I'm expecting Jesus is to come. Oh, no, you haven't done all these things. Didn't you hear the Sermon on the Mount? It's not just about the actual doing. It even goes down into your thought life. Obeying these commandments is much harder, much more impossible than you ever dreamed it was. But he doesn't even go there. He doesn't challenge him on his thinking. He doesn't take that route to correct him. Maybe because he sees that the young man's problem isn't overconfidence. Like, yeah, I've got it. He realizes that his problem is that he understands he's, he's falling short. So what Jesus does, in essence, with this individual... This unique individual is he's like he just puts his fingers on the weak spot or the sore spot. Exactly what it is in his heart that is making him feel like he is coming up short. It's a custom made teaching from Christ. He gives two commandments and two promises. He says, first, you have to sell your possessions. Second, Follow me. It's a call to discipleship. Sell your possessions. Basically, take up your cross and follow me. So give alms. Make donations. Give away your things to the poor. And then you will be perfect when you follow me. Now, it is true that almsgiving was understood. It was a virtue. Everybody knew that it was a good thing to do. But this was a radical statement from Christ. Because nowhere in the commandments does it say, no, you got to give it all. So, yeah, you have to make donations. You got to tithe and so forth. The law says that. But nowhere does the law say you have to give it all. This is very, very extreme and radical. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's exposing what needs to be exposed about this person's troubled heart and soul. And he's showing him when he by asking him to sell it all. He's teaching him, he's coaching him, he's showing him that in your heart, though you're doing these things right, you're not loving God. You're not willing to love God. He's not in the supreme position of worship. Your things are. You depend on them more than you depend on God. You love them more than you love God. That's why your heart is troubled. And in order for you to get into the kingdom, you have to get rid of the things that are blocking you and hindering you from surrendering your life, surrendering your life to him. You're valuing these more than valuing God. And the way we are saved is by valuing God utmostly. So there's a there's tension here that Jesus brings to his attention. And unfortunately, though, he came with an uneasy heart. He leaves now really green around the gills because he he was not willing. He is not willing to do what Jesus told him. This is how you soothe that pain and bring assurance where there is no assurance. But how good of Christ to tailor his remarks to exactly what this man needed to get into the kingdom of God. Jesus commands that all Christians are to submit all of our things, give our whole lives to him. Now, he doesn't. It looks different for each one. 
what Zacchaeus gave, paid some of the things back and gave half of all that he earned. I mean, it's it's different for different people. But whatever it is, we all have something in our hearts that wants to sit on the throne other than Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit, even in this crowd right here, there are different struggles. There are things that some of you, man, you just nail it as far as kingdom work. You are so disciplined or you're so godly in this area. And I just think, man. And there are others that really blow it in other areas. And it's a struggle. And sometimes it's really obvious what we love. And it comes out. And that's what Jesus is after because it's a lack of submission and obedience. And discipleship is following him. So we always want to be. Asking ourselves, what in me is holding me back from going farther in Christ? Holding me back from kingdom things. What am I loving too much or valuing too much? One scholar says, uh, Ritterboss says, The man, of course, did not think that his riches were worth more than eternal life. But he must have told himself that he, not, that he, did, he did not really have to give up his wealth to gain it. It's that deceptiveness. And Jesus has already taught us the, the love of money is a ve- money's a very dangerous thing because we are blinded to its effects often. We, we just can't see it about ourselves because we grade ourselves upscale and we look at the person that has more than we do and we think, oh, well, they have this, so I'm safe. I'm not greedy. I don't have anything holding me back. It's very, very dangerous. And then he gives his take on this whole thing and uses it as a teaching opportunity to his disciples. Verse 23. He said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. We'll hear, we'll hear more in chapter 20 about this whole idea of what does it mean to be first and last and so forth. But obviously... Jesus warns that money is is a kind of thing or wealth is a kind of thing that just kind of grips you and doesn't want to let go. It's not an easy thing to deal with. It wrestles with us to the point that it makes it very, very difficult to escape its grasp. Like a camel going through the eye of a needle, but blind to it. You know, possessions. I think perhaps because we can trust in them like this rich young ruler. And we think that we have things covered. Is this true? Does this bear in our real life experience today? 
I know that when our youth went to New York and set up prayer stations, we set them up in the Bronx and the sub. This particular day, we were in the subway station. We went down in there. We set them up. We had little smocks on that said something about prayer station. I think it said prayer station volunteer or something. Now, we were down in the subway and this is where everybody commutes. People of all different classes. And um, the people, as they were coming off the subway, we'd say, is there anything I can pray? Good, you know, good morning. We're with such and such. Is there any way I can pray for you today? Just wondering. And um, what I found personally was that people that recognize their need, their lowliness, their humanity, their mortality, they would be like, actually, yeah. And you would be you would be praying about anything and everything. Drug addictions, salaries. Uh, shaky marriages, sick children, I mean, just the cares of life. However, those with that were well-dressed, that worked in very nice places and made a lot of money, did not have time for us. They didn't need any prayer. Why would I need any prayer, man? I got, I got six figures. There, there's a false dependence. Of course, it's sand. But they're building their lives on sand. But there's this mindset that really makes it hard to realize our dependency on Christ. This lines up. The disciples' response to this is telling. Because they say, that man walked away. You rejected him in, in a sense. He rejected you, but he walked away. If he can't be saved, somebody like this can't make it into heaven. Who in blue blazes even has a chance? Because in that mindset, your wealth was a physical evidence of God's favor on you. It meant you were doing, you and God were like this. That's how they thought. It was material blessing. And there's some scriptural warrant to it. And so Jesus is turning away this person that kept these commands and was blessed and favored by God. And the disciples are like, well, but we thought this was the epitome of salvation. And yet in that thinking, it was opposite. It was wrong. And Jesus exposes the truth. Even those that are greatly blessed, that it may look like, man, their life is smooth. Obviously, the conclusion is they're favored by God. They may not even be in the kingdom. How many people do we look at and think, well, they've got to be favored by God. They're not even in the kingdom. There's things in them that are holding them. They're not willing to submit. The disciples are like, I guess nobody's got a chance then if, if he didn't have a chance. And that's where God says, or Jesus says, man can't do it. It's God. And so we are introduced to the gospel. It takes the mercy of God, the grace of God, not human works, but the atoning sacrifice in the blood of Christ and that submission and, and acknowledging our need for salvation. That's how we get into the kingdom. We've got to duck down low and not trust in ourselves or our good works. We have a presentation at, in essence of the gospel here. And then Peter wants to know what he's going to get for giving. He's like, well, I kind of gave all my stuff up and followed you. What do I get for it? And we'll look at that. I won't explore that this morning. 
other than to say, Jesus says, it's going to be a hundred times better. And that's just a figure. But whatever you give up in this life, understand if you are a believer and the things that Christ asks you to give up in this life will be rewarded at least a hundred times in the next. So the blessings in this life are not even a comparison to what is to come. So as we close through these dialogues, this interaction with Jesus and his disciples, we come to a greater understanding of what the kingdom is really after and what kind of attitude and mindset, how we need to look at each other and look at the truths of Christ. Look at the things of the world that often entice us and we have to make decisions on how important are we going to allow these things to be. And also look around at perhaps understand the spiritual activity and who is or what age group is more susceptible to spiritual things. And perhaps we already have already said they are future leaders. The youth are the future leaders of the church. That is true. So we want to make an atmosphere and invest in our young people that they might hear the call of God in their lives and by no means rebuke, by no means not look at something and value it with the same value that Christ has put upon. So as disciples, we want to make sure that our hearts are fully devoted to kingdom priorities. May God bless the preaching of his word.